Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Amen. What a blessing uh, to hear that song, to sing that. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, not just that he will have everlasting life, but he has it now, as Jesus said, he has passed from death unto life. Well, that's the theme of our message, our series of messages on the book of Romans. It's the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul had said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. In fact, we could say Paul gloried in the gospel, and we can glory in the gospel too, because it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so we've uh, come now to our last message in this uh, eight-message series on the book of Romans. And this is the believer's partnership in the gospel ministry. And I just want to read here, beginning in chapter um, chapter 15 in verse 14. Read a couple verses here to kind of set the stage for this message. Paul says, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly unto you on some points as reminding you, because uh, because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, be an acceptable sacrifice by the Holy Spirit. Dear Father, I pray now that you would open up our understanding Help us to see how this, uh, these last remarks that Paul is making to the church in Rome, how important they were to him, and also how significant they are in our own lives. Uh, it um, raises the question in our own hearts, well, what are we going to do with all of this? What are we going to do with this gospel that you have entrusted to us, by which you've changed us, by which you've saved us? And we ask, Father, that you would help us to understand what it is you would like us to do as a result of our participation in the gospel. Help us to be gospel partners, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I think it's appropriate. It really, um, uh, Pastor Nathan, when he preached this morning, talked about how it was providential that the Lord had changed uh, the results or the uh, the circumstance this morning, Pastor Indeen being out sick, and how that the message that we had this morning was certainly uh, what God would have for us. I think it's also appropriate that here we are, Memorial Day weekend, thinking about people who love their country and sacrificed for it. And uh, there's a sense in which that this should reflect an attitude that we all have toward our country. Not all of us can go serve, uh, certainly, and uh, not all of us are called to make the ultimate sacrifice in, in defending our country. But the love for our country and our desire to be a blessing one to another is certainly a very important uh, uh, idea and concept that should be dominating our hearts. And also I think it's appropriate that we heard about Hannah this morning because that she was greatly, greatly used by God because um, uh, in his plan and in his sovereign will, but also because of her um, commitment to trust in him and to go to him with her struggles and to um, be willing to be used by him in the way that he would dictate And really, that's uh, what we're talking about here when we're thinking about the last part of the book of Romans. 
The last part of the book of Romans is really about our partnership in the gospel. So let's look and see where we are in our outline of Romans. Uh, So far, we have seen uh, that uh, the introduction to the book, that Paul's ministry of the gospel to the believers. And it's important to remember there that the gospel is something that should change our lives as we think about it and as we see how it is the foundation of everything in the Christian life. The gospel is not just the doorway into eternal life, although it is, but it is the foundation of the Christian life. And then we saw that the gospel reveals the only way to be right with a righteous God. That God is righteous and that humankind is lost and rebellious against God. And that everyone is under the condemnation of God. And that by the deeds of the law, there no flesh shall be justified. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But through faith in Jesus Christ, both Jews and Gentiles are justified, that is declared righteous before God. And then we see the consequences of that as it works out in the lives of the believers. We see that the gospel secures to us all the blessings of reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. That is, everything we have that is of spiritual value comes to us because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we are free from condemnation and we're free from sin and the law and we're free even from the curse of of sin and death as we are more than conquerors through him that loved us and that God is going to use us and make us what we ought to be as we are glorified and become like the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's chapters 5 through chapter 8. And the gospel is the foundation of all of that. Then we saw that the gospel cannot fail to fulfill God's divine plan. We see that God made promises in the Old Testament, but that salvation was always, always by the grace of God. It was never deserved or earned, and and it was never something that a person said, I have a right to this because of my physical descent from Abraham or from Isaac or from Jacob. Yet it's always by the grace of God. And yet we also see that salvation is always, has always been through faith, through trusting in the Lord. And of course, that's only appropriate. Paul makes it very clear that it is through faith that it might be by grace. In other words, the only proper way to respond to a promise is believe it. And the only proper way to respond to a gift is to receive it. And so there is no contradiction between grace and faith, although sometimes there's a constructive tension that causes problems in different theological systems. But in reality, there is no contradiction between the idea that God promises salvation and it is purely by his grace, and yet also that it is received by trusting in him. And then, of course, the the idea that it is all for the glory of God, because God is using all of this ultimately to manifest his great glory in the salvation of both Jews and Gentiles. And so that's chapters 9 through chapter 11. And then we have the gospel creates a Christian community that glorifies God. And Paul says, based on all that has gone before, I I urge you, I, I, I encourage you, I beseech you or beg you that you would walk in a way that's appropriate. That is, that you would, by the mercies of God, that you would present your bodies a living sacrifice. Remember, we were already told in chapter 6 that we're dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ, and therefore we're to present our bodies or yield our members as instruments of righteousness unto God. And so now Paul is saying, now this has to work out in practice. Now that you have this foundation, you have to build your Christian lives on this foundation. And it's not just an individual thing, it's a collective thing. You need to, you need to have a relationship and use your gifts in service and in love for the building up of the community, for the building up of the household of faith. 
And uh, that requires humble uh, service. And then also you need to have a testimony in the world whereby we walk differently. We don't walk as in the night, we walk as in the day. And it also means that we handle differences among ourselves in a way that is a model to the world of, of love for God and love for our fellow Christians. And so all of that then we find as a result of that, God is glorified as he is creating this community uh, out of people from all over the world in different walks of life and different circumstances. And so that the gospel creates this community and our response to the gospel message and how we live is essential for the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now we come to the conclusion of the letter. And this is, I believe, Paul's partnership with the believers in the gospel. The, the key issue here, here is that we're all part of the gospel work. Now, it is true, we saw a little bit of that in chapters uh, 12 through the first part of chapter 15, where we are to live out the gospel. But now Paul is more specifically dealing with the issue of being ministers of the gospel. He is a minister of the gospel. He is an apostle to the Gentiles, but he's not just doing this in a Lone Ranger kind of a way. He has those folks that are helping him, and he is enlisting, as it were, the Roman Christians as part of that whole process. God wants us not only to live out the gospel, but he also wants us to be able to spread the gospel and to work together doing that. We are partners in the Great Commission. And so I think sometimes there's a problem in our lives individually and even collectively. We tend to think of the gospel primarily about in terms of what it has done for us and what it is doing in us. And whereas that certainly is correct, there is really something more to it. Because although what God has done for us is the foundation of our Christian life, and we've seen that throughout the book of Romans, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ is the foundation of everything we are and everything we do. Nevertheless, God is also concerned about what he is going to do for others through us. See, you're not saved just for you. Right, you're saved because, it, for in part, for the impact it will have on other people, and that's always been the case. Whenever God chooses a people, an individual, or a group, or a nation, whenever He chooses someone in the Bible for blessing, He does it in order to be a, for them to be a channel for blessing to others. And so that's what we're going to see here, as Paul is appealing to the um, Roman believers to be an essential part of the expansion of the gospel. So what should be our response? Well, we must see ourselves as active partners in the Great Commission. We are active partners in the Great Commission. Now, so as you, as you see your outline for this evening, um, we see that the first point is that if we're to participate effectively in the Great Commission, we need to be instructed by those that God has given to us. And that's 15, chapter 15, verses 14 through 21. Um, now, so what are we dealing with there? Well, go ahead. You're going to have to do, I've got some of the verses up here, but you're going to want to have to turn as well. So go ahead and turn to Romans. I want you to kind of get a feel for how the rest of this chapter, these two chapters work out, because uh, there are a lot of different kinds of things here. There are greetings here, right? He's concluded his doctrinal exposition and his practical exhortations. Now he concludes the letter by informing the believers in Rome of his ministry plans. So Paul is telling them his, what his ministry plans are so they can be prepared to help him with action and prayer. He also commends to them faithful fellow workers and warns them of false teachers. Finally, he blesses them in words that sum up his teaching concerning the gospel of God. Now this is kind of disparate material. 
And we have a tendency to feel like, well, this kind of thing is just a lot of different kinds of things kind of there at the end. Like, you know, you're writing a letter to somebody and you get through the main business of the letter and then it's sort of like, okay, now let me just kind of, you know, okay, I'll give greetings to my family members and then I'll, oh, and, and don't forget about this. And, and, and there has this, sometimes we have this feeling that it's kind of miscellaneous, but I do think that throughout this whole part is this concept of partnership that is so essential for us as we are serving uh, the Lord. So if we're to participate effectively, we need to be instructed. So if you go here uh, to fifteen fourteen, we see that we, we need to remember that we are never too mature to need reminding and clarifying of the truths of the gospel. And uh, let me back up here. If you, if you go here and remember what we read, the verses that we read here at the uh, beginning of the, of the message, Paul says, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. So his point is, look, you, you have the gospel and you understand it, and you have been given the Holy Spirit and you are, you are full of goodness, you're filled with knowledge because of the work that God has done in you, and you can edify one another. You can help one another come to a right understanding or have a right mindset about things. It's interesting, this word admonish here is the word is where we got this idea of nuthetic counseling, nutheteo, the idea of, of changing of the mind and, and, or of, 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 of ministering to people's thoughts. And um, the, the idea here is that you can counsel one another. And so Paul is not denying that, right? And, and remember, it's important to understand, Paul has not been to Rome. It's a very important church. To the best of our understanding, it was probably founded by those who came back from the, 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 the great ingathering at Pentecost. And there were people there from Rome, and when they went back home, then the, the church of Rome began to be established. But Paul knows that Rome is important. All roads lead to Rome, which means that all roads lead away from Rome, which means that Paul really uh, having this church has a, as an active participant in the gospel is very, very important to his gospel a great Commission plan. And so he wants to make it clear that he knows that they can and should be building each other up. They can and should be serving one another and admonishing one another is the word we have here in this translation. But he says, nevertheless, see, and it's the nevertheless here that I want to focus on. Nevertheless, even though you are mature, even though you are filled with knowledge and you are full of goodness, Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a, a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Now, now, the point simply is this. You're not never too mature to have someone remind you of the truth. I don't know if that ever happens to you, right? You're going along and you're, 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 you're having a bad day or you're responding badly or whatever, and all of a sudden a truth comes to your mind or someone reminds you of a truth and you're, you know, what's your response? I knew that. <laughs> right? And you're not saying it to them because you're fussing at them. You're fussing at yourself because it's like, how did, I, how did I forget that, right? It's like brain lock, right? I just had brain lock. And we're all subject to that. And we need people to remind us of these truths. And so it's, it's essential that as we think through the book of Romans, and, and I would encourage you, if you have opportunity, if you're if your uh, Bible reading schedule or your other uh, Bible study uh, uh, has space in it, 
I would encourage you to go back through Romans, maybe taking the, the analytical outline that we gave you, and just go and see what God would teach you specifically about the gospel. We've skipped over so many wonderful and rich and important details just to try to give an overview of the book. But it's, uh, nevertheless, look, I'm not insulting your intelligence, is what he's saying. And I'm not insulting your spirituality, but we all need these reminders. And that's essential because we can't be good partners unless we all work, unless we all continue to grow and improve. Well, we also must respect the authority and ministry of our spiritual leaders. See, here Paul is now talking a little bit about his own ministry. Now, I'm sure the believers knew about Paul. They knew who Paul was. They knew probably generally about his ministry. Uh, There is no indication here that there was any real challenge to his authority, like we see in some of the other books where where it seems like some people were speaking out against Paul. Nevertheless, and it, it it makes perfect sense that Paul would want to give them some sense as to what his thinking is and what his plan is. So he says, therefore, I have reason to glory in verse 17. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus and the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient, meaning obedient to the gospel or trusting in the, uh, believing the gospel in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God so that from Jerusalem round about Illyricum I fully preach the gospel of Christ. And so I may have made it my aim to preach the gospel not where Christ was named lest he, I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and to those whom he had not heard, they shall understand. Now what Paul is doing is, Paul's, Paul's ministry, right? We think about the nature of Paul's ministry. Paul was a servant. First of all, he was a servant of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. That word is, is doulos, bondservant or slave. And the, the word there is a servant thought of in relationship to his master. The emphasis of the word has to do with the relationship between the servant and the master. He's the servant of the master. So he's a bondservant of Jesus. He belongs to Jesus Christ. But he's also called, called to be an apostle. And so that, therefore he has authority. Now we know there were other apostles. And those apostles did different things. Peter was called the apostle to the, uh, to the, to the Jews and Paul was called an apostle to the Gentiles. Now that didn't mean that Paul only preached to Gentiles. He would go to the synagogue first. But his ministry was especially oriented toward the Gentile, toward the nations, right? And it's quite interesting that he, being the Hebrew of the Hebrews, was called to minister uh, to the Gentiles. But then also he was separated unto the gospel of God. And what it seems to be saying is, is that God had called Paul especially to be a preacher of the gospel. And his strategy was to go find these major urban centers and to and to preach the gospel, and to call together those who had been saved, and to disciple them, and then to plant those churches. And then he allowed those converts then, in those churches, as they are maturing under the leadership that he's left there, he allows them to finish, right, the job of, um, of reaching out to the people all around them. And that was his strategy. And his point is, he had pretty much done that. He had done that in what, we, what was called Asia, or what we would call Turkey. He had done that in the provinces in, the, in, in what is now Asia Minor. And then he had gone over into Greece, and he had done that in Greece, and he had gone as far west as the Balkans. And now he's ready to go west again, and he wants to go all as far as Spain. He just wants to keep going, doing what he's been doing. But he, he, I think part of this is he needs another base of operation. 
right? He's, 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 you can't let you, if you're a military, you can't let your supply lines get too long, right? You have to have a base of operations. The natural place for him to strike out to the west is from where? Rome. And so it makes perfect sense, and he's going he's gonna to say that to them in just a minute. But, but the point is, it's interesting. He wants them to know about his ministry. He has authority. He has done signs and wonders. He's done the signs of an apostle. So Paul has this apostolic authority, and, and it's important for us to acknowledge that authority. And even though he did not plant the church in Rome, he was not the pastor of the church in Rome, nevertheless, he had authority given him by Jesus Christ, and therefore they had an obligation to listen to him. Now, we understand there are no more. The apostles had to have seen the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Paul himself says, I was an apostle born out of due time, meaning that he saw the Lord only after, right? After he had gone back to heaven. Nevertheless, he was an apostle. He'd done the signs of the apostle. But where now, now that we, now that we are living past the age of the apostles, where does the apostolic authority now reside? Can you tell me? In the Word of God. See, the Word of God is the apostolic authority. So that nobody standing behind this desk can say, thus says the Lord, unless thus says the Lord. Right? Unless it's actually in the book. Now, the preacher has authority, certainly. To the extent the preacher is accurately interpreting and accurately presenting and accurately and appropriately applying the Word of God, it's authoritative. And we have an obligation to listen to it. But the authority does not come from the man. The authority comes from the book. You know, and, and that's a great thing. And I think it's wonderful. You know, we have this, this practice of bringing our Bibles to church. Praise the Lord for that. Now, it's great to be able to put the verses up on the screen because that can help us go faster. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful convenience for us. But we should never get to the place where we forget that the authority resides in, in the word, in the book. And there's a sense in which by having your Bible open and looking at it, that's a testimony that you acknowledge what I also acknowledge, that is the authority does not come from me, it comes from the word of God. And that's true of anybody that stands in this pulpit and preaches. Now we're thankful for the leaders God has given us in our church, for our pastors, because they have dedicated themselves to studying the word and accurately proclaiming it and putting it into practice in the local church. And because of that, we should have great respect for them, for their work's sake, right? We should esteem them highly for their work's sake. And you would expect them, right, having studied the word as their full-time job, right, you would expect them to then have a greater understanding of the scripture than than I might have just studying it uh, as I'm able but that doesn't mean that any person is infallible. And I, I know I'm preaching to the choir with regard to that, but it's extremely important. Paul had authority, and we need to acknowledge the authority of the word. And then we also need to have great respect for the ministry of those who are, are serving. It was important for Paul that the Romans understood what he was doing and why he was doing it. And it's essential for us also to understand what the church is, what this church is, and what other churches are, and what they're doing uh, to serve the Lord in the Great Commission. But the second main point we need to see here in these texts is we need to understand that if we are to participate effectively in the Great Commission, we must assist God's servants. It's not enough just to say, okay, I will listen to you, right? My, uh, uh, my former pastor used to say, um, there are two votes taken in every church on projects. There is the vote in the business meeting, and then there's the vote when the offering plate is passed, <laughs> right? Now, which vote's more important, <laughs> See, because it's possible, right? You can say, okay, we trust our leadership. We trust our pastor. We trust our pastors. We trust our leaders. 
We trust those who have, have responsibility, and it's a good thing to be able to trust your, to have trust in your leaders. But if the idea is, okay, well, if the pastor wants to do that, good for him. You see the problem with that, though, right? Because, because it's not the pastor's project, right? The Great Commission is not the pastor's commission, right? He has no more obligation to fulfill the Great Commission than any Christian does. He is an, ex- be an exemplary Christian in terms of evangelism and other areas of Christian life. But his main job is to equip us to do the work of the ministry. And so it's, it's essential that we have this sense that we are part of what God is doing and that we're to assist God's servant. Now, there are two uh, aspects in which Paul emphasizes this. This is in, you see, in 15, 22 through 23. So if you want to go ahead and, and turn there, I'm through 33, I'm sorry. If you want to go ahead and turn there and see, now Paul's planning to visit Rome. The first thing is he encourages them, really, or he, by the way, he mentions their ability to help him with practical support and encouragement. That's 1522 through 29. Notice what he says here in verse 23. But now, no longer having a place in these parts. Remember, he said he had fully preached the gospel throughout that region, and he'd already done pretty much everything that he felt like God wanted him to do in that region, and now it's up to the believers to fulfill, continue to fulfill the Great Commission there. Now he wants to go west. So he says, I have no longer any place in these parts. There's no more room for the kind of ministry I am thinking about doing, and I have a great desire these many years to come to you. Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you. That word helped on helped has the idea, helped on my way, has the idea of, of to send along, to send along. Um, it, you understand how this works, right? Uh, in, uh, you didn't have bank accounts in those days, right? You, didn't, you couldn't just, you know, get on Hotels.com and make, you know, hotel reservations and then use your missionary funds to pay for all that. If you were going to go to a place, you'd need some place to stay. And you almost always needed to stay with people that you knew. And so in the, in the case of believers, hospitality was not just something that was nice. Hospitality was essential for the spread of the gospel. Because you've got a traveling preacher coming through, an evangelist, an apostle. There needs to be some provision for that person to be able to be provided for. And then they need resources to go to the next step. Now, in, in, uh, this really didn't affect us so much when we were involved in mission work because we came along a little later era. But I've heard stories of missionaries a little bit older than myself who would they'd go to a church, right, back in the days of cash. They'd go to the church, and they didn't have enough money in their pocket to get gas for the next, you know, so they got the love offering, or someone would put tires on their car, right, or they would load them up with groceries. And it was very much, uh, it was much more like this thing we're describing here than perhaps we have today with the electronic fund transfers and, and all of that. But the idea was that you needed, Paul needed a place where they could help him. If he was going to get to Spain, he needed help to get to Spain. You know, and if folks are going to fulfill the Great Commission, they need help, right? Nobody fulfills the Great Commission by themselves. And that's not just true of our uh, official missionaries, true of anybody who was seeking to serve uh, the Lord. I think about the, what a blessing it is to be in this ministry and to be part of a team. And it's actually a team of teams, Right? We have a team over at International Baptist College and Seminary, and there's a team at TCA and a team at TFT, and there's a team here in the church, and there's a team, and there are multiple teams within the church, and the ABFs. And the fact is, we are a team of teams. 
And one of the most important uh, factors is our ability to see our ministry as not just about what our group is doing, but about what the other groups are doing. And of course, we're not just teamed up with the people here in this place. We team up with pastors and churches. They send us young people. We invest ourselves in them. But there is a cooperative aspect to that. Our, our, our folks at, uh, in, uh, our students from IBC, uh, IBCS have the opportunity and the privilege to not only have had time here in this ministry, but also then to be a part of other Bible-believing churches and other ministries. We're partners together in the work. And so Paul is saying, uh, I, and notice how he says, I'll be helped on my way by you there. But he also says, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. And I think that's such a blessing. He really wants to see them. And so it's not just a matter of physical and financial help. It's a matter of spiritual encouragement as well. Remember Paul said, boy, back in Romans chapter 1, he said, I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift. To the end you may be established. That is, that I may be comfort or comforted or encouraged together with you by our mutual faith. So there is this aspect of encouragement that's very important. But the second thing is, by means of strenuous, specific prayer. Strenuous, specific prayer. 1530 through 33. Now look at what he says here, beginning in verse 30. Chapter 15, verse 30. He says, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit. By the way, does that remind you of anything? That, that sentence construction, it's not, the word is not identical, but it should remind us of something. There's an echo of something in this verse. I beg you. If I said beseech you, how about if I change it to beseech you? Would that help? Because it's the same word. It's parakaleo. It means to encourage or beseech or to beg. or It's a context word. You, you, how you translate it depends on the context. So what does that remind you of? If I change that to beseech you. 12.1, 12, 12, right? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, right? By the mercies of God, this is through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit. But notice he's hearkening back to the, the gospel. It is based on the gospel that he appeals to them. See, that, that's the beauty of it. The same gospel that we preach is the resource and the motivation that we have internally. Right? In other words, we're not just selling a product. Right? We're not just selling a product. You ever feel sometimes when you're presenting the gospel that you're, you know... I, I said, I don't want to be a salesman. I don't want to be just like trying to sell a product. Well, the answer to that is for the gospel to consume you, right? If you are consumed by the gospel, if you're, if you're as they say in the South, eat up with the gospel, right? If, it's, if, it's your, if, you're, if you're controlled by the gospel and it means so much to you personally, then you don't feel like selling because, in fact, you're not selling your share. You're proclaiming what is true and you know it to be true and you have a conviction a convincing winsomeness when you present the gospel. And so Paul says, I beg you, right? I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers for me, that you um, literally, that you agonize, you agonize together with me. That was a word that was used to refer to an athletic competition, right? I mean, it's hard work. The idea is hard work. That you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. So he is appealing, first of all, he is appealing for, um, uh, for strenuous prayer. Now, I understand that's sometimes a little difficult, right? Do we work up, you know, do we like pray hard? 
remember a pastor saying, you know, uh, what does it mean to pray hard? Oh, Lord, please. Well, you know, it's not something that you work up, but aren't there times when you have been genuinely burdened by something and God just really grabs your heart and you're saying, oh God, please give me this. And so Paul is saying, look, there is an aspect of, of, of uh, striving in prayer and that you would pray for me. But it wasn't just that you would pray earnestly for me. You know, I think that, you know, and, and this is confession time, um, it, it's a lot easier for me to do this and I'm really much better at it um, when I feel that there's a crisis, right? Don't we tend to do that when there's a crisis? You hear about a missionary, right? We heard about what happened uh, in South Sudan there with the robbery and all of a sudden you're like, oh, and you feel a real burden to pray. Right? And so it's a lot easier when you feel, right? You feel the urgency of it. And we really, one of the things we need to pray for ourselves, one of the things I'm praying for myself, is that I would sense an urgency in prayer even if I can't see the urgency. You understand what I'm saying? Because we're in a spiritual warfare and much of the time it's unseen. The dangers are unseen and the opportunities are unseen. But by faith, we know they're there, but it's one thing to know it in general. It's another thing to have a conviction to pray something very specific. And so not only are we to pray strenuously, but we are to pray specifically. Now notice what he asked them to pray for. And it's interesting, if you compare this, look at this and how it relates to the, to the latter part of the book of Acts to see how this prayer actually was put into effect. <laughs> how these prayers for Paul actually had the result that he had asked for. He said that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. He's talking about the offering. Paul's taking an offering from the Gentile Christians to the Jewish Christians, to the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, been suffering. And, you know, as much as Paul talks about that offering in different places in his epistles, that was a really big deal to him. This offering was a big deal. So the next time you say, well, that pastor, he cares too much about taking offerings. Well, Paul Kellebrand cared about taking an offering. But what's, why was it such a big deal, right? It wasn't the money, right? Paul had learned, you know, certainly Paul didn't want it for itself. He was going to deliver it to the, to the church in Jerusalem. And certainly even, even when Paul did receive support, he says, I, I've learned to be content. Whatever, whatever state I'm in, I've learned to be content. But the offering was really important to him. And I really believe one of the main reasons for that was this whole issue of how the Jews and the Gentiles were going to become, despite all of their historic animosities and differences, how they were going to become one people of God. And one way for that to happen was for the Gentiles to show appreciation for what they had received as a result of the gospel coming through the people of Israel and and the church starting there at Pentecost. And, and another thing was for the, for the Jewish believers to accept the Gentile believers as full partners in the work of God. See, there's a danger in mission. Sometimes we think about we are the missionary senders and they're the missionary receivers and they're supposed to sit there and let us give them stuff or do stuff for them. We are in charge. We do the work. They kind of are the passive recipients. And one huge problem on the mission field is the sometimes reluctance and even inability sometimes to turn work over to leadership on the field because we just feel like uh, maybe they're just not ready. And Paul, I really believe, wanted the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem to have an understanding that these Gentile believers were full-fledged Christians. They weren't sort of second-string Christians. And so putting all that together, right, 
putting all that together, it makes perfect sense for him to talk about this in the book of Romans because Romans, he says, he talks about this issue of the, of the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers all being one in Christ. And that's really important theme in the entire, in the entire book. So he wants, the, he wants the offering to be accepted. He also needs to be protected. He needs to get to Jerusalem. Their people want to kill him. He had to change his plans a number of times because of the danger of people trying, lying in wait to kill him. He has to get there. He has to deliver the offering, right? And then he, has to, he wants to get back to them. He still, had, he still wants to com- fulfill his mission, so he wants to get back to Rome so that then he can go on and fulfill his ministry, so he can bless the people in Rome and also so that he can extend the gospel farther west. Now, so, now let's think about what happens in the latter part of the book of Acts. Paul does get to Jerusalem, uh, I, I, he delivered the offering by all, by all indications. Uh, he was well received by the church in Jerusalem. So I think that we could uh, infer that the offering was received as well. Then he is, he's in the temple, right? And he is mobbed and then he's arrested, right? He is, his life is put in danger multiple times. He has to spend a, uh, a couple of years uh, waiting for himself to get some kind of a trial. And finally, just to save his life, he has to appeal to Caesar in Rome, and he ends up being shipped off to Rome. He's in a shipwreck. He almost dies. He gets bitten by a serpent, and God protects him from dying. And eventually, he gets to Rome. Now, let me ask you, do you think the prayers of the Romans had nothing to do with that? You think at least some of the Romans were, were praying? These are the very things he was asking them to pray for, wasn't he? That I would be protected in Judea from harm, that I would be able, that my offering would be acceptable, and that I would be able to come back to you with joy. And guess what? It was all fulfilled, even though when you read the story, it's like, I don't know if it's going to happen. Right? If you didn't know the ending, you know, the thought that Paul's going to make it to Rome is, is, a, is an exercise in faith, isn't it? And we know he got there. And it was all expense paid by the Romans. And so, and so here Paul is in Rome, and this prayer was answered. Now, how do we make that application? Well, I saw in the bulletin this morning, we had, um, uh, we had, our, um, we had our regularly, right? We have our missionary prayer requests, and there are specific requests in there, right? The Mendozas in Mexico. And so what could we do? Well, I think it's very important that we pray earnestly, but also that we pray specifically for the advancement of the Great Commission. Of course, that does not just apply to official missionaries either. It applies to anybody who is involved in Great Commission work, which is basically all of us. So then the third point here is, if we are to participate effectively in the Great Commission, we must understand the nature and working uh, of working in a team, right? And that's why I really appreciated this photo that was available online there. You know, what a, what a great dynamic, you know, you got all these bicycle riders together and they're drafting and they're helping and they're working uh, together. But you know, that's what we're doing in the Great Commission. The Great Commission is a team effort. That's 16, one through uh, 27. Now in order for us to think about this and understand this, I actually want us to look quickly at the Old Testament. So go back to Second Samuel. Now, you don't have to actually, don't start there. That, this is David's mighty man, okay? And we're going to get there. But before we get there, I want you to look at a couple of uh, passages first, okay? Really quickly. We're going to do this quickly. 1 Samuel 14, 49 through 50. And you're going to look at this and say, what in the world does it have to do with any of this? And the answer is, uh, it does. Trust me, okay? 
So 1 Samuel 14. Okay, remember, Samuel starts out during the time of the judges. Eli is the, is the judge, and his sons are wicked. And God raises up Samuel, and Samuel becomes a judge. But God intends to use Samuel not just to be a judge, but to transition the nation to the king, to the anointed, the Messiah, as we heard this morning, right? Hannah's prayer ends up talking about the Messiah, the anointed one. And, of course, the first application of that is the king. And so we see that happening. So, so a lot of what's going on in First and Second Samuel is the, is, um, has to do with the kingship. So here we get to chapter 14, and uh, Samuel has anointed Saul. Saul has had various wars, and the Spirit has come upon Saul. Saul's already had some failure, some success, and some failure, and some disobedience. But he has not been rejected by God yet from being king. That happens in chapter 15. And so it says here in 49 and 50 of chapter 14, it says, The sons of Saul were Jonathan, Jeshui, and Malkishua, and the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn Merib and the name of the younger Michael. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimahaz, and the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now, so that's a summary, in a sense. It's saying, okay, here's who Saul is, here's who his family is, and then here's who the commander of his army is, okay? So he's sort of saying, this is Saul's reign. He's sort of like a little thumbnail of Saul's ruling power. Okay, now, go to 2 Samuel 8, 15 through 18. Okay, Saul's rejected from being king. David is anointed king, but how in the world is David going to become king? Well, it was not an easy road, he, he, he kills Goliath, but then he's chased by Saul, and then eventually Saul is killed, and David becomes a, a leader and king in Hebron. But then, um, but then uh, uh, we're not done yet because uh, David is not king over all of Israel. Finally, David wins the civil war, and he becomes king over all Israel. And so we see in chapter 8, verse, and, and he's established in his reign, and he defeats the Philistines, and he defeats the Syrians and the enemies around, and he is established in his reign, and it says in verse 15 of chapter 8, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all of his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Elihud, was the recorder. Zadok, the son of Hitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abathiar, were the priests. Um, uh, Seriah was the scribe. Beniah was the son of Jehoiada, over, the son of Jehoiada was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were chief ministers. Okay, so we have a summary. Now David is established in his throne. Okay, chapter 8. But the story doesn't end there, because what, what happens? What happens in David's kingship? He sins. And he sins in such a great way that God publicly humiliates and also judges him... But does God throw him over or throw him off as he threw away Saul? Did he cast him away? No. What does he do? He restores him to the kingship. After much, after civil war, much uh, hardship, you have 2 Samuel 20, 23 through 26. So go there. It says, And Joab was over all the army of Israel. Beniah was the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Adoram was in charge of the revenue. Jehoshaphat, the son of Elihud, was recorder. Shiva was the scribe. Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. And Ira, the, um, the Jairite, was the chief minister under David. So now we have another summary. David has been restored to the kingdom. 
and now he's back in the kingdom. But so I've got a question. Why isn't the book over? Right? David's kingship is established. And then we go to kings, and that's when David is old, right? And David then, uh, Solomon succeeds him. So what's with chapters? Well, the theme of, the Sam- of Samuel is the origin and nature of the monarchy. So then the question is, what about chapters 21 through 24? What are they? Well, you have a lot of different things going on in those chapters, and we don't have time to go through those, but those are things that happened essentially in, in during the exile, but then also during the reign of David. And they sort of bounce around, right? So that's what we would call an appendix, right? What's an appendix? It's something that there's a lot of important information, but it doesn't fit in the main storyline. So you have to put it at the end. So what you find here are, is an appendix. Now, why doesn't it fit in the main storyline? Because the storyline is about how God raised up kings and how he puts down kings and then also how he raised up this David to be king and how he judged David and, and uh, chastised David, but how he didn't throw him off and how he's being faithful to his promise to the, to the Messiah and to the people of Israel. So it's the establishment of the monarchy. And so there's a lot of things that don't fit well into that account. But they're still important and we still need to know them. Now, one of the things in there, there's a number of different things there, but one of the things in there is the story of David's mighty men. And what you find out is these are 37 men listed, David's mighty men, and they're incredible exploits. 800 killed in a battle. 300 killed. Giants killed. In fact, there's another part of the appendix where it talks about how the sons of the giant were killed. Do you know that David was not the only person to kill a giant? Four of his mighty men killed four of the sons of Goliath, of Gath. And so if you think about it, those, uh, those men that were with David, who were part of the, I believe, the 400 refugees that came to him when he was running from Saul, those men were essential for the kingship. There would be no king without those men. You see what I'm saying? Yes, the story is about David. Because David is the one anointed. But without those men, there is no kingdom. In fact, David would have been killed. He would have been dead. There'd been no king. There'd been no kingdom. And God wants us to know that here were people that were heroes. So what's the lesson? The lesson is that there are many heroes in God's army. Most of them serve behind the scenes. Most of them serve behind the scenes. Now, what does that have to do with Romans? Well, we're about to get all these greetings in Romans, right? We're about to get all these greetings. So if we're to understand what it means to work in a team, we must acknowledge and encourage the many essential partners in the work. And I'm going to have to go real fast here, so hang on. Okay? So if you go back to Romans chapter 16, and I lost my place. But I just want to skim down through here. There's so, there, this is really rich. Now, we don't know who a lot of these people are. Uh, the Romans did. That's why Paul is saying to greet them. They were real people. They lived in that time. But there's some wonderful information that we can glean. And I just want us to focus in on some key principles. First of all, he commends to them Phoebe, our sister, verse 1, who is a servant of the church at Chencrea. Chencrea was very close to Corinth. Paul knew Phoebe, and in fact, she had ministered to him. There's a word there where it's, it could have the idea of being a patron. In other words, of helping and supporting. So um, there's a, a significant, um, significant service that, that Phoebe has done and in connection with the church that was in Chincrea. And she is going along with this letter. A lot of people think she actually was entrusted to carry the letter. Undoubtedly, there was a group going. You didn't travel by yourself. 
but but that uh, there's a there's an ancient there's a long-standing tradition, and a lot of commentators believe that she was actually the one entrusted by Paul to carry the letter. But in either case, she had important great commission business, and he is encouraging the saints, the people in in Rome, to treat her as appropriately and to assist her in whatever business she had need of. See, there are a lot of people doing a lot of important work. And even if we don't really know the details of their work, we know that what they're doing is important. I think of all the folks here in all the different ministries that serve and minister. And the fact is, in a ministry our size, I can't really know what they do most of the day, other than I know they're real busy. But I do know that what they're doing is essential for the work of the Great Commission in this place. And of course, that's true of people in other places as well. But then there are all kinds of other people. There's Priscilla and Aquila. And Paul says they risk their own necks. They, put, they, they cast their own necks down for my sake. It's like they risk their lives for me. Some of the folks in the list, quite a, many of the names, according to commentators in the list, are, um, uh, indicate perhaps that these folks were either slaves or they were freed slaves. But there were some others who had resources. Priscilla and Aquila were able to have a church uh, a meeting in their home. So there were all different kinds of people, all different walks of life, and yet Paul wants to mention them by name because they're important. Now, I'm sure there were a lot of believers that didn't get mentioned. <laughs> there are a lot of servants, a lot of workers that don't get mentioned. And not every, you, know, you hate when you start thanking people for working on the banquet, right? Because you're sure as you're going to do what? Leave out somebody. But you know what? Most of the time, most people are left out of human recognition. But not in heaven. Not in heaven. God is not unfaithful to forget the work that we do for him. And this is like David's mighty men. Without these people, Paul gets nowhere. And the ministry gets nowhere. Sure, the, sure Acts focuses on Paul. It has to. He's an apostle. You have to know how God used the apostles to spread uh, the gospel. But we can't forget what God is doing by teaching us about this. Now, I wish I could talk a little bit more about the individual details, but as you go through that list, think about the fact that there are many people that are essential for the work of the ministry, and you are one of them. We also must understand how to respond spiritually to subversive people. It's interesting, and I think that the, the connection here is that Paul's saying, look, here are all these wonderful servants, but you know what? You have to be discerning because there will be people that come that don't have the best interest of the ministry at heart, and there'll be these false teachers. And what we're told to do is we are told to mark them or to beware of them, understand what they're like, and we are to avoid those who would be spiritually subversive. They create dissensions and they create stumbling blocks, and those stumbling blocks are spiritual stumbling blocks. It's very important for us, it's essential that we have a good, strong theological foundation in our own thinking. Everybody is responsible. You know, I was teaching Baptist history this semester, and in Baptist history, we talk about the fact that Baptists don't believe there's any hierarchy over the local church. Well, then who's responsible? And we also believe in congregational government. So if we believe in those two things, who's responsible to make sure the church doesn't become apostate? You can't count on a church council. You can't count on some kind of infallible pope. You can't count on some kind of a presbytery in order to keep a local church straight. The people have to do it, and that means you and me. We all have an obligation to know the word and to be able to discern and apply the word to our lives. 
Fourth thing is we must understand that others work in a team as well. Others work in a team as well. And then Paul is giving greetings now. He's now giving greetings from the folks that he is with. And, and the fact is, although we only hear about Paul, and occasionally we hear about other people that were with Paul, Paul depended on other people too. Uh, one of the ones that, is, uh, that I enjoy is, uh, look at verse 22, right? If you want to fool somebody, ask them, who wrote Romans, right? And they say, Paul did. And you say, well, what about verse 22? It says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, <laughs> greet you in the Lord. Well, it was Tertius. He was the secretary. He was, Paul was dictating it, and Tertius was writing this down, right? And so Tertius gets to greet the people. <laughs> I think that's really good. He wrote his own greeting right there in the letter, right? And now I'm not saying Tertius is, you know, I mean, how does this work with inspiration? Well, it clearly was Tertius, right? <laughs> we, know, we know that that's true. This is the word of God. But the point is that God uses lots of people in his work to do all different kinds of things. You know, it, it's like, Think of the benefit of the PowerPoint up on the screen and what a blessing that is, right? To be able to see that, okay? And then finally, we must remember whose team we are on. And then this is Paul's benediction or blessing, right? And just very quickly, I want us to look at this. Now, to him that is able to establish, you remember in, in Romans 1.11, he said that he wanted to give them a spiritual gift so that they could be established, you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, remember this is the gospel concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. According to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest by the prophetic scriptures uh, that was told before by his prophets in the holy scriptures, right? Concern, made known to all nations according to the command of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. That is the gospel is preached for the obedience of the faith among all nations. Chapter five, verse one. To God alone, wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. And that's what makes it all worth it, folks, because that's what we're involved in. Right? We have the greatest message, and not only is it just a great message and a great idea, it's something that has radically changed our lives. And so when we get grasped by the gospel, then we are motivated and empowered to share the gospel. So just some quick questions. How teachable are you when it comes to principles and practices of the gospel? Are you teachable? I just love preaching here because the peop- you're so receptive to the truth. In what ways can you practically participate in the ministry of the Great Commission? And finally, how can you more clearly see the Great Commission as a team effort? Now, there are lots of practical things that we can do, but I encourage you to start by just looking at your bulletin. <laughs> Look at your bulletin from this morning and say, how can I do these three things? All right? How can I participate in the gospel of Jesus Christ?